out of Oklahoma City. You're listening to the Good Trash Genre Cast, where movies are more than just 90 minutes in a bucket of popcorn. The Good Trash Genre Cast is a member of the Good Trash Media family. For more information, go to goodtrashmedia.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome again to the Good Trash Genre Cast, where people gather around a table and we discuss the films that you will never, and in this case, absolutely not ever. No, absolutely never, ever. Discuss in a film studies course. Yeah, we, we cheat a little with that sometimes. We uh, do. I could definitely see a, a couple of the films we've done over the last, like, two months make it. No, Daybreakers uh, is not going to make it in. No, it absolutely is not. And so we're very, very excited to be talking about this film. Um, let's go ahead and identify these disembodied voices here around the table. Uh, who are you, sir? My name is Dalton Stewart, and Dustin, I um, I'm going to do it again this week. I didn't I didn't pull a quote, uh, not because uh, of like last week with Bullworth, where I was like, I don't want to say any of those lines. Uh, it was just this week. There's nothing that's really stuck with me, and uh, I don't feel like forcing it. There you go. Um, I actually, I think I do have a line per off mic conversation, so it's going to be very inside baseball. But uh, my name's Dustin Sells. My friends call me Elvis, and I am glad to be here with you all. And that's not funny to anybody else on the planet, but that's okay. I don't actually care. Uh, we need to tell you, dear listener, what kind of show you're listening to. If you're tuning in for the very first time for what is this, the 218th, 219th episode? Oh my God! Is of, it? Yeah. Oh Jesus! It's a thing that's been happening for a while now. Oh wow. But if this is the first time you've tuned in, this is not a review show. It is an analysis show, and that does mean that we will spoil, but we will not spoil first. We will we will delay that climax I, of spoiler. I, I mean, normally it's not that big of a deal, but I feel like probably a lot of people have slept on this one. Yeah, they, they probably have. I mean, yeah, it's definitely a movie a lot of people have not seen, and I think it does very much want to have a twist. Now, whether or not it successfully does so, we'll talk about here in just a few moments. I don't think so, but the I just don't want to spoil some things in this movie that are pretty fun. Yeah, absolutely. So, what I will say is this, then. We will um, we will postpone the spoilerage until after we have a synopsis from the voice of the Dalton Theater. Then we'll have our quick thumbs-up, thumbs-down reviews. Then we will play a game about moviedom that is related to this film, which might involve a mild spoiler or two of the film in question, and may indeed involve a mild spoiler or two of other films in its orbit. And then we will get down to business. And once business time begins, all spoiler bets are off, and uh, we were going to uh, let you know all that stuff um, that maybe you did not want to know if you have not yet seen the movie. So therefore, and thus you have been warned without any further ado dr dalton stewart yes. what uh let's hear that voice of the dalton theater give us that synopsis in the year 2019 a plague has transformed almost every human into vampires faced with a dwindling blood supply the fractured dominant race plots their survival meanwhile a researcher works with a covert band of vamps on a way to save humankind by IMDb user Todd S. I decided we should be doing that. Oh, by they do they do credit who writes those IMDb summaries. So I really feel like that was a shitty of us to not be giving credit for the last five years. Um, but let's do that. Okay, thanks, Todd. Thank you, Todd S. Uh, that that about covers it. Um, I like that he used the word vamps as though we are in the colloquial slang of a world yeah. dominated by vampires. Also, he doesn't though. All the team he works with is humans, but that's fine. Yeah. Or wait. 
Yeah, covert base. Yeah, no, no, no. That's uh, the, the anyway. That's not important. Yeah, nonetheless, um, that's what happens. It's it, there's there's vampires. They're farming humans. There are very very few humans alive. It's, it's uh it's what if Blade Three worked? Yeah, I mean it's like. it's the vampire plan at the end of Blade Three. Yeah, and so world domination has taken place, and uh, because of the dwindling human population, because they are not, in fact, They're eternal. running a not very uh, effective matrix. Yeah, and yes, and so uh, the, the cows keep dying. And when the cows die, there are no baby cows because they're not allowed to breed uh, the way that this whole thing's set up. So they've really got a really, really poor operation, and uh, it causes something of a crisis. So, Dalton, what do you think? Thumbs up, thumbs down. Do you like the movie Daybreakers? Well, I had uh, the last time I had seen Daybreakers was when it was in theaters. Uh, so I would have been 10 years younger now. Good Lord. That's upsetting. Um, I remember... Th- Thoroughly enjoying Daybreakers on its initial release. Um, you got to remember around the time this film came out. Uh, I forget the exact. What did we say? Two thousand eight. Oh nine slash ten. Oh nine. Okay, so right around the release of this film, we were living in uh, the midst of the Twilight uh, explosion. Um, so this hits general release January 2010, early January. Gee, I wonder why they dumped this movie in early January. I don't know. Um, probably because it's not great, but we'll get to that. Um, but at the time, um, there weren't a lot of like hella violent vampire movies, a lot of, a lot of romance vampires. And uh, I think every once in a while when a genre or a, a fixture of fiction has taken on a certain new form, it's nice to have... Uh, a throwback in some regard, and for that, I, I think Daybreakers at the time was, you know, kind of kind of a good thing. Um, ten years on, it's okay. Or, well, I guess 2010 theatrical release, so seven years on, it's okay. I mean, I don't hate it. Um, it's a lot of fun. I, I would say there's definitely some some truly fabulous uh, effects towards the end of this film that are a real treat. Um, there's a romance subplot that just does not work and does not matter at all. And, you know, we call those out from time to time. A lot of the time we let sleeping dogs lie on that one because it's just like, well, yeah, if we talk about every unnecessary romance, that's going to be what this podcast is because we watch a lot of action movies and such uh, and, and the ilk on this podcast. And that's kind of a genre known for those things. Um, but, man, it just does not matter here. Uh, the screenwriter is like, oh, I guess I should have a woman in this movie. Um, here we go. Um, and that's what happens when two, uh, two brothers write a movie. Um, what are you going to do? You know, uh, that part's bad. Um, but I, I, I would say other than that, it's, you know, it's competently made. There's some really, really cool shit in this movie. Um, Willem Dafoe knows exactly what movie he's in. So does Sam Neill. Uh, Ethan Hawke, uh, Ethan Hawke scared and in pain faces are both super good. Uh, so everybody's operating perfectly fine. No one's phoning it in or anything. It's just, it's a kind of a lackluster movie. It's kind of, the, the scripting is it has no urgency. There, there's like a lot of subplots that don't go anywhere. Um, it definitely feels like stringing along what the actual plot is going to end up being, uh, which ends up being really cool. Um, I think one of the, the biggest problems with this film is there is clearly an intention uh, of metaphor. And the problem with doing that is when you when you make like a uh, I wouldn't even call this a satire, obviously, but when you try to 
speak to the conditions of the current world using you know science fiction or fan we'll go ahead and say science fiction in this case even though they're vampires when you're you're going to make a dystopia that's very clearly supposed to reflect something in the real world when your metaphor is off it just makes the movie a little too confusing and um we'll talk about that more in analysis i think but that that was a problem for me was this movie could not decide what the central metaphor was and i think it makes the movie uh as a whole sloppier uh for it Okay, that I think that's absolutely fair, Dalton. And I, I like the movie. This is the first time I'd seen it. Yeah, this is only the second time I'd seen it. Um, and so I do have perhaps some of the, the greater joy that you may have had yeah. upon your theatrical view. But you really enjoyed it. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. It, it is. A t- I, I was kind of underselling how much fun it is. Yeah, it, it really is a, a lot of fun. And again, Willem Dafoe is doing his Willem Dafoe-ness. Oh, he's so great and in he, this. Yeah, he, yeah. He, he, he Willem Dafoe's the whole movie up. I mean, it's great. Yeah. And so I, I don't have any problem with that. I do like Ethan Hawke in these sort of small or horror films that he that he uh is often a part of especially in that that run of about three years it seemed like he's been doing lots of this kind of work and uh, that's all that's all great to me i think the score is actually really good too i enjoyed the score yeah Yeah, and which is uh which is something you don't normally remark upon in a film like this in an unremarkable film yeah because it's not a lot of uh use of known music it is just simply the sort of bed that lays under and it's just i i really liked it quite a bit um i think the film does a good job of setting up its aesthetic well and something i should have i feel bad for neglecting to mention other than it's aesthetic Dustin does a really good job of setting up uh if not like a cohesive job of setting up the rules of this society definitely a fun job of doing it yeah of of all the things that would be different if everyone were vampires like everyone smokes again including children yeah, everyone smokes again who's gonna die yeah who cares yeah everyone started smoking again which i think is great and uh, wearing fedoras yeah blood in the morning coffee i think is hilarious mm-hmm. um the, the the way cars have to work uh, the way city travel has to work. All those things are really cool. Uh, but specifically the aesthetic, you, you really went for this kind of noirish thing. Yeah, I really like that a lot about well, it. Well, it's your wheelhouse. Yeah, and it's, I mean, but it is a lot of flash and not a whole lot of substance. That has to be said. Yeah, and, it doesn't mean anything. It right. just looks fun to make it all 50s-y. It's and, like retro future. Yeah, almost. absolutely. And I remember getting about 50 minutes into the movie, and I, I'm not exactly sure quite at what point we were, but I think at this point Ethan Hawke had, had thrown his lot in with the humans, and I don't think that's any sort of a spoiler no, to say. No, that's that's feels, I mean, that's telegraphed very early. Yeah, when that finally does happen, I thought, well, they've only got half the movie now to solve this problem and then, you know, sort of find some way to universalize their solution. And I thought, oh, because they don't actually care about that. They, they are stringing together a set of action sequences that we want to have a handful of car chases, that we want to have a handful of... Good car chase. Yeah, good car chase, right. Uh, vampire fights, they do want to have these sort of uh, great set- setups, uh, this moment when there is this uh, subsider vampire in the home. Though Those are great little bits, uh, but they're really pretty loosely uh, strung together and uh, does, uh, as a metaphor or an allegorical sort of telling of a story, it is a little bit of a mess and troubled for various reasons. Yeah, I, I guess I, I think it would behoove us at this point because I feel like uh, a lot of listeners might just go ahead and listen to us talk about this one. And this is a movie that a lot of people I've definitely not seen. Um, I guess it, it might bear mentioning a little bit more of the plot than we normally do. So these subsiders Dustin just mentioned are like these mutant vampires, and it's what happens when uh, vampires don't feed. You um, turn into Nosferatu vampires. Exactly. Um, if you either don't drink human blood or even worse, go cannibal and self-feed uh, or feed on other vampires. Apparently it makes you go real loony real fast. 
Uh, if that's the only blood you got around, that's what you take. You go, you go bonkers, uh, and and the lack of human blood makes you go all uh, Nosferatuan, um, which is pretty cool. So that's like the 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 crux of this society is like freaking out because everybody's going Nosferatu because they're running out of human blood. Um, and Ethan Hawke is in charge of coming up with the blood substitute that'll work. Um, but uh, it turns out he also is doing that because he really does not want to drink human blood. He's been drinking pig's blood for like ten years. So that that's where we're at in this world is, um, and then things get progressively worse throughout the film as far as the amount of human blood uh, and the amount of uh, Nosferatu uh, Uber vamps. Uh, it, it's to, basically an economic crisis in which there's yeah. a blood shortage. And this is where the metaphor gets really messy, which we'll talk about in a little bit. But I, I thought it bared mentioning just to give a little bit more plot coverage just because we're probably going to talk about that plot and that story and how it relates to the, the metaphor in the film. Yeah, I think so. But there you go, dear listener. You, you, We like this movie. We think it's fun, and we think it's definitely sort of in the wheelhouse of that which is good trash. It's not top-level echelons, but it's good genre filmmaking. That is a lot of fun, although not without problems. So our biases are generally, eh, okay, uh, I think is what we would say. Um, yeah. And, uh, okay. Yeah. And uh, there you go. That That's where we're coming from on this. Now, we're having this conversation in Dalton's living room, as we have been over the last handful of episodes, and we'll continue continue to uh, for you all. And Dalton and I are already friends. We already like to talk about movies. We already have these kinds of conversations all the time. But the reason why we're having this conversation with microphones in our hands is so that we can have this conversation. Wait, this is being recorded? It is being recorded, by oh, the way. Oh, no. The man knows. Oh, man. Uh, Dustin, I think I was said doing the show, buddy. Oh, oh, oh okay. Well, no, wait. There's already... The- 200 hours of me. Uh, yeah, by, yeah, by the way. It's too late. But could you tell them a little bit, the dear listener, about how they could be part of this conversation with us? Well, if you insist, uh, you can find uh, the Good Trash Media Network, uh, our uh, parent organization, uh, and the Good Trash Genre Cast uh, as one entity over on Twitter at good underscore trash. Ditto for Facebook, which is facebook.com forward slash GTM. Uh, you can rate and review and subscribe to this show on iTunes and Stitcher Radio, which I cannot tell you how much we appreciate it. It's, uh, it's really nice. The, those reviews are, are good, and we definitely uh, make a point to, to read them on air every once in a while. So if you do that, yeah, absolutely, we'll read your review of this show, um, even if it's mean. Absolutely, absolutely. Especially if it's mean, honestly. Um, yeah, those are the places we do those things. Um, thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you very much, Mr. Dalsford. Also, you can go to GoodTrashMedia.com, and you can find everything Good Trash uh, located in one uh, even distribution venue uh, for you all. But I think it's enough of this test stuff right now. I think now it's time. Time to play the game. Time to play the game. <laughs> That's right, dear listener, and this week's game is our favorite sequences of vampirism. That's right, favorite sequences of vampirism, brought to you by Daybreakers. Daybreakers. God damn it, is this movie bloody. <laughs> yes, Holy and- shit, I had forgotten how violent this movie is. There's a lot it of blood. It is so violent. Um, and that's why we were, we were spitballing games, that this was the first thing I thought of. I was like, hey, let's just talk about, like, buckwild-ass vampire moments, because... Um, we're in spoiler territory now. The end of this movie uh, ends with, like, three incredibly violent vampire feeding frenzies. Uh, so it turns out uh, Ethan Hawke and um, Willem Dafoe have cured vampirism. Willem Dafoe accidentally, accidentally cured himself. Uh, Willem Dafoe, being a scientist, uh, helps uh, scientify it. 
Uh, and it turns out if you expose yourself to sunlight as a vampire and then douse the flames, that's all it takes. Which really is unbelievable to me that it took ten years for people to figure this figure out. Figure that one out, yeah. That's it, ridiculous. It, it's something You're like... telling me after ten years of most of the world's population being a vampire, nobody nobody forgot for like a minute that they were a vampire. I forget to do shit all the time. I forgot I had to pee earlier and like ended up in my room like folding laundry and almost pissed my pants because I completely <laughs> forgot that I needed to pee. You're telling me not one vampire has absentmindedly gone out to get the paper at 7 a.m.? That's funny. It's hard to change those sleep cycles, yeah, man. That solar defibrillator, though, that's all they needed. But anyway, that's all it takes, uh, and drinking uh, cured vamp blood cures you. And it uh, turns out in this movie, uh, they happen to be at Vampire HQ, so every time somebody gets cured, there's just 80 real hungry vampire standing right there yeah i gotta say this is one of the plot holes before we actually get into our gameplay that really did bother me in terms of review that i didn't want to say mm -hmm. in the review sequence is that it felt as though when the brother fed on willem dafoe when he was made well like that was clearly what had happened mm -hmm. but when uh ethan hawk goes and confronts the movie tries to hide what has happened hides what happened and it's supposed to be like this big moment of revelation it's like don't you know now i've cured you and i'm just like yeah I, Get yeah. to it. We know what's about to happen. It just yeah, and it, it felt really, really stupid. It's cool when it happens, though. Yeah, it's cool that it happens, and it's cool the way it happens. Yeah, it's just the 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 framing of the picture is a little weird. It was supposed to have been a twist, and it was just kind of like, well, yeah, get on with yeah, it. Yeah, we know. Just right. show it because it keeps cutting to this Willem Dafoe monologue that's not quite clear at first where it is even. Right, uh, and you're like, oh, we're right. There. Are they talking about this right now? Or was this like three hours ago before they got to the building? Right. So that's a little silly. It's but, a, bit, uh, a bit of a gerb. Man, does this movie end in, a, in just an absolute moment of insanity. Yeah, big bloodbath. Uh, quite, yeah, lots and lots of blood. So so tell me, Dalton, what are some of your favorite moments of uh, vampirism in the cinemas? Um, I actually wanted to mention a moment from a film that I didn't love, but I, I liked quite a bit, uh, and that is uh, Shadow of Vampire, which you guys talked about back yeah. in Shocktober. I was not on that episode. Uh, but there's a sequence in that movie where Willem Dafoe uh, as... Uh, uh, Max Shrek uh, as Count Orloff is, um, I forget which actor it was, but he's he's kind of terrorizing somebody. This is one of the first moments where he, we see him vamping out real hard. Um, I think it's a sound guy or the I can't remember who it is for the life of me. I don't remember. It's either. early in the film, um, but there's a moment where he, his, his vampirism, his monstrousness is first kind of made public uh, by really terrorizing one of the crew members, and uh, it's absolutely astonishing uh and also a shout out to the end of that film which i think is really quite good um so that, that was my my first selection excellent excellent so uh my favorite uh barring none and maybe i i'm not doing a very good job of ordering my selections here but yeah that's uh, okay start with a bang oh man i'm telling you what there is a the vampire reveal and feeding that happens in from dusk till dawn yeah that uh, yeah. is nuts it is so gnarly it is so insane we've got go-go dancing girls we've got bikers being dismembered into various pieces we've got yeah. this great reveal of selma hayek uh gone from very very attractive to very very terrifying uh there's in also the band the band uh yes. who uh i can't remember the name of the band they've been featured in a couple of uh rodriguez joints uh but their instruments are now uh, disembodied uh body parts yeah. with strings on them it's so hilarious it's very silly and i, I love it. i rewatched from dust till dawn recently i'd forgotten just how silly that turn is uh, and i realized oh you know what i've always thought man wouldn't it be cool to watch from dusk till dawn and not know that it was a vampire movie 
And as I was watching, I was like, actually, no, this is so jarring that you did. if you didn't know it was a vampire movie, it would probably take you right out of the movie. Yeah, you'd be done. Because honestly, the movie that's already happening is so good. The Tarantino movie that is the first hour of that movie is so good. And the Rodriguez movie that is the last 40 minutes is really cool. Um, but not particularly good at times. No, absolutely But that not. moment is insane. Yeah, it's nuts. So uh, that's my selection. What, what do you have next? Uh, the next one that I wanted to mention is um, from the film. Uh, it's a sequence from the film 30 Days of Night uh, based on the, the comic book yeah. by IDW Publishing. Yeah, it's uh, I, it's like uh, flowers in the attic. No, that's no. Uh, I don't. I didn't really want to use a Holocaust metaphor, but it's it's very. It, it does kind of evoke Holocaust imagery. It's this moment where all the townsfolk are hidden in their crawl spaces and attics, and the vampires are going through town looking for survivors. It is so intense in a movie that's just okay at best. Um, it is an incredibly well shot sequence. Um, th- this movie is, uh, I can't remember if it was shot on digital or not. I'm going to assume it was, but this would have been early in the digital convert, co- digital shooting conversion. This is like 09, 010. Uh, I love saying 010. It's very funny to me. Uh, it's one of the first movies I remember seeing. I'm like, wow, this is a really kind of weird washed out color palette. Basically everyone in, uh, for about six years was using David Fincher's color palette, which yeah. made most movies much more appealing to me, uh, just aesthetically. Because uh, I like that weird black and blue uh, darkness. Because darkness doesn't look dark on digital; it looks blue. And I got—I was really into that look for a while, and I, I still do. I, you know, th- th- there's a lot of naysayers of the digital look, but I gotta say I'm a fan of that. I don't, Dustin. What are your thoughts on this, real quick? I say nay. Really? I mean, I like film, film as well. I like that blue hue. Uh, now, it can get a little boring. When every movie looks like that, it starts to get boring. That's where I'm at. And that's where I'm at now. But at the time, I was like, this is really cool. And uh, also, I just remember thinking, oh, the blacks aren't right. Yeah, see, I kind of like it. I kind of like it. I, I think the the cinematographer uh, on, on a given film that's shooting digitally has to lean into it. They have to embrace they, – they have to shoot it like a digital film. You can't shoot it like uh, a celluloid film, I guess is my point. With uh, with dark colors, but especially the snowy landscape of this this remote town in Alaska, um, and then shit really jumps off when uh, one of the survivors tries to take a combine harvester, if it is a or a snowplow of some sort, and a shotgun, and uh, tries to distract the vampires. And it's a sequence that just ends in like there is grease and blood and just goo all over it's the snow, nasty. and it's so like this whole really twenty to thirty minute sequence in the middle of third days of night is. Really outstanding in a film that otherwise is just okay, kind of like Daybreakers. I mean, it's very similar in that regard. It's from about the same time, and they both have two or three moments that are absolutely magic yeah. if, if you're into a, a, a hell of violent vampire film. Absolutely, absolutely. I, I'm going to name another moment that is a moment of vampirism, but it's actually a moment of vampire death um, combined okay. with it. And that is the moment of Tom Cruise as Lestat's death. Okay. In uh, well, not death because it, well, spoilers. He ends up making it uh, in Interview with the Vampire when um, very, very young Kirsten Dunst is uh, feeding him to what he thinks are drunk children as a uh, making up present for their mm-hmm. quarreling and their fighting. And he slowly begins to rot, and the black goo rises and flows from you know his orifices. Yeah, she, she gives him dead blood. 
Yeah, you you fed me dead blood. That's such a specific rule for Anne Rice to have written for her vampires. I like that. It's kind of fun. Yeah, I I very much like that, and uh, and I really do like the way they wrought him out. I mean, it, it really you know that's a moment that doesn't get enough love. The moment that gets the most love for like sort of special effects of the decay of the vampire is the ending sequence of uh, Horror of Dracula or just Dracula from 1958, starring the great Christopher Lee, in which uh, there it, it was it was edited and really really cut down. You can find like old Japanese cuts where you can see like this this sort of uh, mortician's clay that's all over Chris Lee's face that he just rakes through with his fingers and it's it's really 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 intense. But and then that that is the moment that gets the love because the censors caught it up in 1958. But really, I think this is the the most distraught and disturbing sequence in which even though you hate Tom Cruise and you hate Lestat as you're watching this, you feel genuinely bad that this awful thing is happening to him at that moment and so i really really like that moment man i am thinking about that uh that vampire melting you were talking about though because it's such a good scene yeah that's the one that um has um oh god who's the actor that plays van helsing in that film in oh uh uh, peter cushing that's yeah that's one cushing like vaults over the couch right just like a full just like yeah high jumps over a couch very very super athletic athletic performance yeah it's cool yeah i love it those candlesticks oh man yeah, that's a good one. It's I, a muscular movie. That one we needed to mention on the list just to get it in here. Yeah, uh, just to say something. Here's a bad movie that Dustin and I were actually talking about recently. Um, I, I don't know why my selections have all been from just okay vampire movies, but I, I guess that that's a, a real strong uh, statement about good trash. I mean, sometimes you find some real beautiful scenes in movies that aren't that good. Uh, the film John Carpenter's Vampires, real boring title. Starring James Woods and Danny Baldwin, I think is who we decided, um, and a fake uh, cast of people you've seen in maybe two or three other things. Uh, kind of a weird cast all around, um, especially with James Woods, uh, who we we didn't know certain things about back in 1997, whenever that or whenever that film came out. Uh, this film, if you're not familiar, is all about a Catholic Church-sanctioned team of vampire hunters. Awesome. Yeah, Dustin's already in. Uh, awesome. Which sounds like. It's like, wait, this this was an American movie? Like, this sounds like a Japanese movie, right? That just sounds like uh, an anime, um, which is weird to me. It's, it's a very specific, it's kind of shot like a Western, takes place in the desert. Uh, but there's this amazing sequence at the opening of the film where you learn about how they hunt vampires, and it basically involves like going into their lair and harpooning them and reeling them into the sun. And it's really cool. Uh, again, not a good movie. I cannot overstate how not good this movie is. But it's got two or three moments in it that are just bitching. Um, so that was one that I definitely wanted to give some love to, just because we were talking about it, not even the other day. Absolutely, absolutely. M- my last pick is from the original Blade film, and that is that club scene. Yeah, it's so good. You don't know what's going on. It's You're so definitely good. walking into this sort of gothic oh kind of God. club kind of thing. It's so good. And then suddenly the sprinklers come on, which seems like something that might happen. Yeah. And they're full of blood. And it is madness that follows after that. I love that moment. I, I'm here to say that all three Blade movies are really good. Yeah, even good. three, which is not great, uh, it has some really unfortunate language in it that I, I don't care for, uh, is super good. Uh, it's it's just who there, there, there's some there's some gross words in there that we don't uh, yeah. like in movies as much anymore. Uh, mostly from Ryan Reynolds, who it, it helps because he's so cute. Um, he, <laughs> this is a couple of words that, uh, that hurt my ears for uh, people to say them on screen sometimes. Uh, that's neither here nor there. Even that movie's good. 
Uh, Jessica Biel like slices up a vampire with a a light string. Yeah, that's yeah, kind of. Awesome. That's a thing that happens. So yeah. So that's that's one. I just want to you know we talk about Blade one and two on this show so much that I wanted to kind of give some love to Blade three because I was thinking about it the other day. It's very deserved, and I I like all the trilogy, so it's all good stuff. Yeah, but I just. That's such a good trilogy, right? Yeah, it is. I love it. Yeah. Um, I, Dustin, I'm good on picks, man. Okay. Let's uh, Let's get down to business. I think let's just do just that. It's business. It's business time. I know what you're trying to say. You're trying to say it's time for business. It's business time. Ooh. It's business. It's business time. Yes, indeed, dear listener, that business time has come once again and that business is as always analysis now dalton you already mentioned this in the review so let's go ahead and pop this off this way i've got some things i want to say about the ideological mix of what's going on with this particular film yeah in conversation with bullworth from last week i know when i was watching this movie i was like wow this is really weird what a pair what a pair what an accidentally kind of perfect double feature. Yeah, but that being said, you want to talk a bit about the allegory in the film. So let's hear some things about that. Okay. We'll, we'll get the discussion yeah, going that way. So let's get started. Uh, at first, it seems like this is about oil, right? Because it's all about this thing that the vampires need that they are running out of. And it's like, oh, well, we got to find a substitute right now. We've, we've got to find a substitute right now because we weren't paying attention. I'm like, oh, okay, so this is about oil and alternative fuels, right? And then Sam Neill starts having lines uh, like, you know, it was never about a cure. We want repeat business. I'm like, okay, so it's about big pharma, right? Uh, and then they start rounding up people who are um, are, are sub. What do they call them? Sub subsiders. Yeah, they 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 start rounding up the vampires who are starting to turn. So I'm class like, four citizens. Yes, class four citizens. Uh, and I was like, okay, so it's it's a war on poverty. But the, the bad kind, not the good kind. Um, what is happening? What the fuck is going on? And the movie just keeps changing its central allegory, its central metaphor, and it makes it really hard to track the logic of this film. It just it muddles it too much. I, I like a good non-specific metaphor because you can apply a lot of things to it. But when you get it, it's non-specific with specifics, if that makes sense. You, you yes. You signal boost too many specific. Uh, you use too much real-world language. Uh, you, and it just, it's the alternative. It's okay. Okay. Uh, alternative. Like you, you, you gotta be careful about that kind of thing. And I feel like daybreakers lose sight, lose a sight of that. And it makes the surrounding film just a little bit m- muggier. Yeah, I totally agree. I totally agree with that. It also really drinks deeply, uh, and no pun intended, but sort of intended from the matrix. Oh, in a big yeah. way. Oh, in a huge way. I mean, just just aesthetically, when we've got all these you know humans that are tied up to the sort of uh, blood milking machines that they're using. Yeah, it looks it's it's very reminiscent of the uh, the feel. And I I don't know if I would have made the connection if I hadn't just rewatched the sequels. But may, no, I definitely would have. Made no, the it's connection. totally there. Yeah, it's so obvious. Well, I mean, you know, you've got we've got Willem Dafoe as Morpheus, the one who has escaped, who's helping yep. this person who's got this sort of malaise about his life and doesn't really like what's. That going on. That was the parts of it that made me when he was they were they were talking about there's no going back. And I'm like, 
wait a second, hold on, this is structured very similarly to The Matrix. Yeah, it really is. And and then it even ends in a similar kind of way. You know, yeah, they, an 11th they, hour storming of the castle. Yeah, storming of the castle, and uh, it doesn't end the situation, but now we have a resistance cell that we can believe in. Yeah, it's, We've got, it's the same ending. Yeah, Neo making his phone call without the Superman flying thing, it's just the car. Driving off and driving Willem Dafoe's muscle cars. We have not given enough love to the fact that this is a movie about Willem Dafoe fighting... A society, uh, an evil society run by vampires with a fleet of muscle cars and crossbows affixed to shotguns. Yes. How have we not spent more time talking about that? Yeah, I know, because that is awesome. Yeah, we really have undersold this movie. It's got some great stuff. The fact that the vampires explode upon being staked, holy shit, what a cool idea. Yeah, I like that. Like, And I don't mean like blood explode, although they do a little bit of that. I mean, it's a fireball. It is a fireball like the sun sparked inside of them. And you have a little bit of that in the Blade films as well, but nonetheless, yeah, it's it's, it's so not it's not fun. explosive like yeah. I mean, Buffy has like cinders. Yeah. yeah, Buffy has the dusting, and and Blade has the kind of burning away. This has a full on explosion, like with impact, like with with C four, yeah, like C four went off when you staked them. Like there's a chance you could die from concussion after this. Yeah, you know? yeah. it's super cool. Yeah, I uh, like that. But anyway, uh, back to the, the the matter at hand. That that was something that really troubled me was the the messiness of this narrative, uh, and not even this kind of sub narrative, if you will. Um, so, Dustin, what, what about you? What did you think about that? This this weird allegory, uh, not, this non committal allegory. Yeah, well, I did. I didn't like the fact that it was non committal as an allegory. I tended to resonate and just try to box it in. Uh, try to do something like you might do with, uh, say, The Shining. If you mm-hmm. want to, if you want to put a lens on it, put your favorite lens on it. That's so, fair. And, and so, as I was watching, I, I did know that absolutely we could do an oil thing here. Absolutely, we could do a big pharma thing here. Absolutely, we could do some agribusiness stuff yeah. here. Absolutely, there's 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 other things at play. But I, I decided that I was going to look at it in terms of class. Well, and that's what it always comes back to for this film. For you know, conversations about this in general, but this film in particular, it does kind of keep coming back around to class and, and not only class, but, but specifically, uh, an unbalanced, uh, cancerously unbalanced, uh, capitalist system. And this film does that specifically by, by being so centered on the commodification of bodies, uh, the commodification on people as, as money. Um, looking at people as dollar signs instead of as people. And it's not just the humans, it's the vampires as well. They get treated like uh, units to be moved. Um, and that that was what kept bringing it back to class and capitalism for me. But uh, it was very distracting, the mixed allegory. But for you, you keep coming back to class. Did that help you make sense of the film? Did it help hold things together for you it yeah absolutely it did help make it make better sense but it also helped reveal one of the significant problems with this film and other films of its ilk and that is uh something like walter benjamin's version of messianism that what we have to have in order for there to be any sort of equality in order to upset a system that is hierarchical where there is a one percent that rules over uh sort of something of an upper class suburban Mm -hmm. set which are the most the other vampires which even have a lower set that are these subsiders which have an even lower set which are the most commodified bodies that live in the sunlight that are tanned by the sunlight they're browned by the sunlight i'm just saying there's a racial component that goes on with that as well with the two-thirds world and those people who are not able uh, to have the same sort of financial power and they are again used and hunted in order to uh, provide the needs of those who are further up the totem pole or the food chain or whatever it is that you want to say but what 
what needs to happen is you've got to find somebody from that to be your advocate and your ally. And a conversation that I've been wanting to have um, that I was thinking about in terms of Bullworth is this idea of class consciousness, how that the only way any system like this would be upset would be by the workers united. It would be by those who um, are most oppressed throwing down their chains and doing something about it. And yet I am sympathetic to this idea that you can find allies that are in the places of power who are willing to use their power and their prestige in order to help things out. And it it, it is a both and, but what tends to happen in Hollywood is that all of the power, all of the real deliverance, there's never any traction at all for the workers until they get somebody who, who takes his prince's crown off and rolls up his sleeves or her sleeves. Usually it's his, nearly always it's his, and works then with the unwashed masses. Yeah, and I think a big part of that is, narratively speaking, it, it's an easier story to tell to make it an either-or thing, right? Instead of making it a both-and narrative. Uh, to delineate uh, sides, to to uh, you know draw very clear lines of battle, it makes for a better story. It makes for a more compelling story, and that's fair. I mean, it, it not I'm not going to say it makes for a more compelling story. It makes for uh, a more economical story. I mean, it's easier to tell. It's quicker to tell. Um, and I think that's it's weird that this film is what we end up talking about after Bullworth because just last week we were talking about. Is it better to try to affect change as somebody with resources in the system, as you were just mentioning? Or, you know, is it better to blow up your life to try and live authentically and genuinely with the people you want to help? It's very, it, I mean, it's, a, it's an interesting idea. This film and Bullworth don't touch on it, uh, but it's a good idea to talk about in response to these films. And it's just weird um, that we ended up talking about it again. And I think Bullworth tries to say the thing about changing from within the system. Uh, I don't think this film's trying to say anything, but what it says on accident uh, is that you have to blow up your position within the system. Um, and it is, of course, Willem Dafoe, not Willem Dafoe, Ethan Hawke, who um, works for, you know, the most viable company in vampire land. Um, yeah, it's just, yeah. And again, the only possibility for victory for the rebels is if they get their vampire from the upper echelons of power. Yeah. And then by having that person – because having Willem Dafoe – Willem Dafoe is a lower-class vampire. He's a mechanic. He's a grease yeah. monkey. That's what he was doing. So he's, he's working class even – but he's working class American. Right. Uh, and so it's, it's still a place of power and privilege. He's not quite enough. But you get somebody who's from the top echelons, you know, the right hand man of this sort of major, you know, um, this member of the Pfizer family uh, with Sam Neill's character, then maybe you can get somewhere with this. And I, I, I always find that to be really, really troubling that that's what always happens. But I also want to avoid the overreaction in the way that we tell these stories of revolution. Blowing up the system. Because, yeah, yeah you need to have those people. Um, who are being most oppressed to become class conscious so that something different can happen because it is only by their labor and their power. They have all the labor. They have all the power. They have all the ability to affect that sort of change if they were to unite to do that. At the same time, it is good to have other people who are allied with you and doing those kind of things. And you can overreact. I, I recently saw a friend of mine, and this is I, I think this thought is like percolating in my mind a lot, and I'm not sure how much it has to do with Daybreakers as much as I want to talk about it okay. uh, in this moment. But I, a friend of mine 
um, who's female, who identifies as queer, uh, who is also a racial minority. So all of those things are working for her, and she's doing great scholarship and those kind of things uh, in, in my program. And one of the things that she suggested at one point, sort of as a joke, is that, you know, it would be a great idea for movies if we banned white men from making movies. And I, at one point, I'm like, yes, indeed, let's give voices. But at the same time, like, you know, there are things that could be said, right? It, 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 it's, it, it's a difficult yeah, sure. place to negotiate. Does that make sense? No, absolutely. Um, uh, it makes me think of uh, a lot of, you know, being in film communities, both, uh, you know, locally and, and abroad. Um, I, I know a lot of people um, go, obviously, the, you know, there's very common 52 uh uh, films by women, which I think is great. You know, oh, you watch a film a week, um, but make sure it was directed by a woman. Uh, right. I, I, see, did, I did it last year. Yeah, I see people take a step further and say, I'm not going to watch any movies directed by uh, white people or men this year. I'm like, okay, that's fair. Um, but here's the thing. I wanted to go see Logan. I'm not going to do that. I'm, sometimes white dudes tell stories I want to hear and see. One of them's Logan, which is a very good film. Uh, one of the better uh, Hollywood movies I've seen in quite a while. Um yeah, man, sometimes I want to go see that shit. So I, I think that's a different thing entirely, what I just said from what you were saying. Uh, that's, um, but, but it's along the same lines, right? It's, it's blowing yeah. up everything. It's like, well, yeah, we definitely need to make some changes because there are too many goddamn movies by uh, white dudes. But, we, you know, that doesn't mean that there aren't some, some stories there. Right. And that, that's the thing is that, that we don't want to say no one from power and privilege ought to be part of the conversation because they've dominated the conversation for so long. Yeah. We don't want to say that, nor do we want to say that uh, by, this is just the way things are. And if the, you know, the cream will rise from the uh, sort of quote-unquote whatever your identity politics ranks come from, that we need to be very, very intentional about making sure that those people are voiced. And it's, we, it's both and. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's both and more. You can never – stop adding more to a pot that uh, is inclusive. And, and I think one of the sins of Daybreakers and its many, you know, sort of narrative sins and, and again, bad CGI moment sins too, mm -hmm. I just want to point out. Uh, but one of its sins is that it does fall into this sort of messianism that, that what you really need in the end is somebody who's going to be the advocate and the advocate oh, is... Oh, thank God a clean-cut white guy showed up. Yeah, and he can, as Jesus, he can walk us into the promised land. And yeah. just malarkey. Yeah. I think uh, what, it, what a film like the matrix maybe has going for it is the fact that um honestly uh, keanu reeves is so racially ambiguous um he is predominantly of caucasian ancestry but i think he has some racial ambiguity about him uh, and the neutral maskness of his face that it becomes a little less uh white guy saviory and just kind of stock saviory um and i know i that i, I ran perilously close to saying uh, well stock character is white man i promise mm -hmm. that's not what i'm saying i know right. that that's a bad thing uh, I'm just saying I think it works in its favor. It also helps uh, that the majority of the cast of both all three Matrix movies are not are, are people of color. Uh, mm -hmm. The the white cast is predominantly villains, um, which I think is awesome. Yes. I always thought it was a cool touch about about that, that trilogy. Um, and I think that's a real failing in Daybreakers. And I think you can get away with a little bit more when you do things a little – when you hew closer to the Matrix, you can get away with a little bit more. Even if, you know, things that look bad, you get you give the benefit of the doubt, right? Yeah, absolutely. When something looks bad in a film like Daybreakers where I can't remember seeing more than two black people um, and no other uh, racial minorities. And this takes place in California, I think. Yeah. So that's ridiculous. 
uh, to start. But when you're operating from that, and I, I get it. Like, they're like, oh, uh, see a vampire, so it's going to be super pale. Oh, yeah, white people are pale. I mean, that's fair, but come on. Don't don't be stupid. Right. You made a mistake. And, yeah. and it makes the film, it makes it harder to forgive things like uh, savior complexes that come up. And you're like, well, this is a little messier now that uh, it's this rich white guy saving everybody, right? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, I'm going to do a thing that I never do, okay? which is to give Dalton an opportunity to say something and make himself look good. Mm-mm. But um, Dalton, I don't, I don't like this. I, 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 man, because I think this ties into what we were saying, but we okay. were talking about The Matrix not very long ago, and okay. I know this is a daybreaker show, uh-huh. but we are talking about racial politics. We are talking about sort of the... the, the, the oh, you're going to make me seem smart. I am going to make you seem smart. Okay. I'll let you make me seem so, smart. So um, tell me your observation about the people of Zion. So I noticed uh, in my rewatch of the Matrix trilogy, which I know we talked about last week as well, um, everyone, as far as I could tell, everyone that was born out of the Matrix is a person of color. I could not see a single person in Zion. Uh, like people, they're obviously there are white characters in the Matrix, but they're all podborn. Uh, and I made the observation, I go, oh, that's, that's because white people can't be born woke. Yeah. They have to learn how to be woke. Um, and I thought that was – I was just kind of a cutesy one-off observation. I don't – I'm not trying to subscribe intent uh, to the Wachowskis and the casting directors of the film. Um, but it was just something I noticed about the the makeup of Zion. That, that was really cool. Um, it was just something I thought about as I was watching the film. And uh, Dustin liked the observation. That made me feel smart. Yeah, I really, really very much did. And so this uh, – i that's the last nice thing I'm ever going to do for you in the history of your life. That's good. I, always want I, to I don't like it. I don't like it when people do nice things for yeah. me. It makes me uncomfortable. Well, I don't know how to react to it. Um, <laughs> here's the thing that I thought about. The the nature of being a vampire in this world, just the ethics of murder in this, in this world. Yes. The, it's weird when they choose to touch on it, when they choose not to touch on it. You know what I mean? Uh, because... Ethan Hawke's character seems aghast at the idea of drinking human blood, right? He just—it's not—it's not, not going to do it. But it never becomes clear if it's because he thinks it's gross or he doesn't want to. You know, it's not. It, there, there's a couple of characters that say, "Well, being a vampire is bad because you have to like prey on people." Yeah, that is bad. But then they just kind of forget about it, uh, and the the degree of violence at the end of this film. Uh, is not shock. It's shocking in a fun way. It's not shocking in a my god, what a tragedy kind of way. Uh, and it really kind of underwrites in a in a very bad way. Uh, Ethan Hawke's central character motivation throughout this film. Well, it's a muddled, messy sort of uh, vampire ethics that we have here because every single person bitten does indeed turn. Yeah, if, if they're not killed, they turn. It, yeah, if they're not like totally torn apart and so ethan hawk is reacting in some sense against the idea of the farming of blood Mm -hmm. which is absolutely the exploitation of these humans who are going to eventually die and they are not going to continue on in any form whatsoever they're simply going to die and so it is a in some sense is a colder kind of murder because there's not even an undead life that follows after that but then it's further complicated as you mentioned because you can be fed upon and killed in the process insofar as they can remove your head from your body while yeah. they're at it and of course you're not going to be able to reanimate in that circumstance and so um, part of the problem with the film is that it does have this sort of muddled mythology uh, that's working against this sort of question of is it okay to kill or not to kill and those kind of those you know, sort of typical kind of vampire lore uh, kind of questions I, I will say this it does a thing that I I kind of like every once in a while where the protagonist is not uh, uh, we'll call it uh, the the children of men school of action scenes, uh, where the 
ostensible hero of the film, the protagonist, is not involved in the final action in any way, is just trying to survive the final action. I do go for that quite a bit sometimes. I, th- I think it's an interesting way to kind of um, demythologize, uh, you know, redemptive violence. Uh, I think it's a really interesting thing to do. To see Clive Owen, you know, running through this firefight at the end of Children of Men, or see uh, Ethan Hawke hiding essentially in an office while this bloodbath is going on. Um, I think it's an interesting choice. Um, and I, I, I'm always intrigued when films do it. When, when, when films kind of choose to let the protagonist hide from danger, um, which is a scary thing to do, to right. say, I want to put my hero in the least interesting part of the story. I want, them, I want my hero to just be watching the most interesting thing happening along with the audience. I don't actually want them involved in it hands-on. Uh, I think it's an interesting choice, and I think it does kind of allow them to preserve some aspects of the morality of violence in this film. But again, when you shoot a bloodbath that wicked awesome, you're you're only going to be doing yourself a disservice, I think. Uh, again, to bring up Logan, um, you know, Logan wants to have its cake and eat it too in regard to violence. Uh, and I can't remember if you've caught up with it or not. Um, but, you know, Logan is an incredibly violent film. And it's, it's, it's trying to use its violence to recontextualize superhero movie violence at times, uh, which is an interesting thing to do, to say, hey, you know, every time Wolverine's been in a fight in all these other X-Men movies, this is what actually would have happened. Like, this is what it would have looked like for a dude with uh, in-universe, in-canon, unbreakable metal sharpened and attached to his hands. It's going to be a bloodbath. But it has too much fun with how cool that bloodbath looks sometimes, so it kind of fucks up its message about violence. Daybreakers does the exact same thing that Logan does, just did it a couple years earlier. It It says maybe as we're kind of puzzling through this, it is trying to say that this violence is bad, but it's too awesome for you to fully commit to uh, condemning it. Absolutely. Well, I mean, Linda Hutchison, uh, Hutchian talks about that. She's a uh, postmodern philosopher. Mm-hmm. She talks a bit about how postmodernism when it's uh, in practice is always going to be a complicit r- critique. Mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, that's what we're seeing right there is that they are complicit in what they're doing, but they're also to some extent trying to uh, achieve some version of critique. You know, I, as somebody who is kind of obsessed with movie violence to some degree, I don't, I don't know if I am, I don't know if I can back that statement. You know what I mean? Uh, because I am obsessed with it in in the in so far as that I l- really love it cathartically, um, but I'm also always searching for somebody who's done something different with it. I'm always searching for tell me a story using violence that I haven't heard, um, and I, I think telling a story that somebody hasn't heard and using violence as one of your paintbrushes, I, I don't think that inherently makes you complicit in a violent society or a violent culture. Um, I, I think, if anything, you're going to help a culture re-examine itself and its fixation with violence as a solution um, by making violent films. I think that is 100% how you're going to do it. It's just a question of how you do it within the frame. Yeah, fair enough. I mean, you know, and again, there there are definitely shades to this, and there are, there are more complicit and less complicit. For sure, absolutely. You know? I, I'm just saying, on the surface, as a very simple argument, I don't agree with it. Yeah. Okay. Well. To, to boil it down to its most, uh, the, its simplest forms, as you just did, uh, I, I think on paper sometime again this comes back to blowing up the system versus working within the system. I think you have to work within systems sometimes, regardless of what that system is. But I think sometimes you have to work within it because when you are affecting change, especially when you are affecting change uh, on a majority, you have to do it in a shape and uh, size that they understand. Yeah. If that makes sense. You have to use the language that they understand to make them see things differently. 
Yeah, that's totally fair. I, I and I appreciate that. But well, there you go, Douglas. We've we've definitely um, done some dissection of this film um, at this point, and we'd love to hear your thoughts on this, on uh, issues of violence, on issues of class, on issues of allegorical storytelling. Uh, very famously, J.R.R. Tolkien was very not keen on allegory. And yeah, so, he was really tired of people trying to make uh, his uh, his book about World War II. Yeah, and uh, yeah, I mean the allegories are definitely there. Uh, but I think it's more about war in general than that war specifically. I think so, too. So uh, let us know what you think about Daybreakers. Uh, give us some feedback via those magical means of social media. But we're going to come to a point where we're going to render a verdict regarding Daybreakers. If this thing needs to be left out in the sun and burned up or if uh, it rem- should be on your shelf. So the uh, verdict that we always give here at the Good Trash Honor Cast is shelf or trash and then our else's or instead's. Dalton, what do you say? Shelf or trash, else or instead? I am going to have to say trash. Uh, it's good. It's fun, but it's not essential. Um, and there are better movies that give you the same thrills, uh, both of which we've talked about on the show. So instead, I want you to go check out Stakeland, uh, which is another movie about vampires taking over the world. Uh, but uh, it's way more like The Road than The Matrix. So uh, uh, we talked about Stakeland. Uh, Dustin liked it. He also liked uh, We Are We Are, the remake that um, was made by the same director. Mm-hmm. Um I also want to recommend, again, these are all my insteads are from right around the same time as Daybreakers. Uh, I want to recommend Cabin in the Woods uh, as another instead um, because it does the same kind of climax much better. Um, uh, Nightmarish horrors wreaking havoc uh, in a uh, distinctly bureaucratic looking establishment. Um, It just does that way better Um, and seems to be doing better things and more interesting things with the violence. So for the, the the thrills that this bloodbath offers you, go to Cabin in the Woods. It's a better bloodbath. And for the thrills that the idea of a world overrun amok by vampires gives you, go watch Stakeland. It's a it's a better movie. Um, it's a smaller movie, and it definitely shows at times. But I, I am certainly willing to go on a limb and say it's better. Excellent. I appreciate that very much. I am also going to say trash. I like Daybreakers. It's fun. I'd watch it yeah, again. Same. Oh, I, I was the one that said we should watch this. Yeah. I had been wanting to see it again, so I'm not saying it's terrible by but, any means. But it's not worth owning. Exactly. Um, my else uh, is going to not be a vampire movie, even though I love all things vampires. That you do. well known. Yeah, it's well documented. Um, but I'm going to recommend Alex Proyas' Dark City. Oh, good pick. Else. Yeah, yeah, that's a really good pick. And, That'd uh, go real good with this movie. It would, and it's got the aesthetic, and I think it does something slightly different in its politics that might be interesting. And uh, it's not a film without problems. There definitely are some. But I think it's uh, it's definitely a good pair if you were to watch them both. And if you were just to watch the one, you could still have the kind of conversation that we've been having thus far and perhaps have it in a deeper kind of way. And so that would be my recommend for that. So there you go, Drew listener we now come here to the conclusion of the show and uh, we thank you all for listening in and being part of our conversation uh together about the film daybreakers and we love all things ethan hawk and so that was a good time we need to talk about next time and guess what next time we're gonna make sure we watch a movie by a woman who's not white (laughs) yeah we we, after these last two weeks holy shit Holy shit. Uh, yeah, uh, we are going to watch the – get ready for another conversation about movie violence. We're watching 2015's The Voices starring Ryan Reynolds. Um, it'll be interesting. Yeah, Marianne Satrapi is the director yep. famous for her work at Persepolis. Yeah, very famous uh, for Persepolis. And uh, it's a great comic and film, and so we uh, recommend uh, it in general, but that's too good for us. Very, very different film. Uh, let me tell you, buddy. You haven't seen this, right? No, I have not. Okay, I just made Dustin watch the trailer before we sat down to record, so uh, he seems interested. I have seen it. 
Um, I'm excited to talk about it because I think there is. Uh, I don't want to tip my hand on how I feel about it, but I uh, whether I like it or not. But I'm excited to talk about it because I think there is a whole lot to unpack with this movie. It's a quirky comedy about a serial killer. What more can you say? I, yeah, I mean, th- there will be things to talk about for sure. So there you go, dear listener. What we want to say more than anything is what we always say is that these movies, movies in general, are about the conversation. It's not just about the time spent and the escapism, the 90 minutes, the bucket of popcorn. It's about the conversation. That's what makes watching the movies worthwhile. So we want you to talk to somebody about the movies. Talk to us via those magical means of social media. You guys just keep watching, and we'll keep talking, and we'll see you all next time. Good Trash Honor Cast is a member of the Good Trash Media family found at goodtrashmedia.com. Our intro music this week is, as always, Night Call by Kavinsky and Love Fox. And our outro music this week is the man, Elvis Presley and Burn in Love.